Okay, now, you're in Matthew chapter 19. Let us pray. Help us to see your will, O Lord. Your will is always perfect because everything about you is perfect. Your will is always right and your will is always best in your kingdom, which is yours. Help us as we read your word to learn not just facts, not just lines, not just doctrine, but help us to see you Help us to see your will. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can have this time together here today. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. May I read for you, please, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together Let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake he who is able to accept it let him accept it well i really was greatly blessed in my own study and preaching through chapter 18. What a marvelous discourse that was, and I sort of wish it went on. But here we go. Jesus left there and went uh, out of Galilee and went south into Judea 
And then we read now about another passage, another set of circumstances in his great and marvelous life of ministry. And it says in the beginning of this passage that it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, those wonderful sayings that make up that discourse in Matthew 18, which I I just hope you will take all of that to heart and, and listen to it some more and find the sermons that Nelson puts up online and listen to all that stuff again because it's so important and you'll you'll hear me referring to the sermons time and again from Matthew 18. But um, now we move on as Jesus moved on. It says he departed from Galilee and he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And just to give you a little geography, that means he went south and most of the kingdom of Judea was on the western side of the Jordan. If your memory of the Old Testament serves you well, Joshua crossed the Jordan River from the east side of it into the west side of it to conquer. And the majority of what was then Israel and then the kingdom of Judah and then Judea was on the western side of the Jordan River. So now, and that's where Jerusalem is as well. But now Jesus is on the eastern side of the Jordan River in a region that other places in the Bible refer to as Perea. Maybe you have a study Bible that that tells you that note. But in the thinking of uh, the people of the world at this time, just the whole region was known as Judea. So it's sort of like eastern Judea, if you will, where he is. And culturally, it might be a little bit different because of the, the, the separation by the river which would have been a much bigger deal than it would be today. You just hop on a bridge and cross the bridge today. Not as, not as tra- transit travel was a much bigger deal. Natural barriers really meant something. So it was perhaps a little bit different. But, but people would go even from Jerusalem all the way across the river, which may not seem like much to us today, like I said, but they'd go all the way across just to see Jesus and just to hear Jesus and just to see all these wonderful things that he did. Well, I'd love to think that would be us, right? If we were alive then and we heard that Jesus had come, we'd cross rivers, we'd, we'd go wherever we had to go to see him and to hear him. That ought to be the characteristic of your life today. Whatever you got to do, however you got to organize your schedule, whatever you have to arrange in your life, I want to be where Jesus is. Uh, and of course, he's always with you. So you're making that time to pray and you're making that time to read and meditate on God's word. You're making that time and organizing your life so you can be in worship and experience the joy of, of praising him and singing and, and all the gladness and be part of true Christian fellowship and sharing with one another. We ought to, like, we ought to pour all of our best efforts into being around the things of God The Bible even tells us that we should be doing this even so much the more as we see his day approaching, right? So it came to pass when Jesus finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, like I said. And look at this, and he healed them there. Now, let me point out here that, as you know, Matthew and Mark share parallel accounts of many things. And the parallel account to this is in Mark chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. It reads roughly the same. Some of the the discourse about marriage and divorce, the order of the sayings and who said what to who first is a little different in Mark. 
I always appreciate those, but those perspective, different perspectives. But it's basically the same thing. But the chief difference, and I find this fascinating and wonderful, the chief difference between the two accounts is that in Mark chapter 10, it makes no mention of Jesus performing miracles. In Mark chapter 10, what it says in the, in the same opening is that uh, it says, as he was accustomed, he taught them. And so you get Mark's perspective the, the thing that he emphasizes is that when these great multitudes come to Jesus, he teaches them. And then when you get Matthew's account here, these great, same great multitudes at the same occasion come to Jesus and he healed them. And I just appreciate the comprehensive uh, picture of what Jesus was doing that you get by compiling those two accounts. Jesus taught them and he healed them. And we have seen in the Bible that the purpose, the reason why Jesus would perform all these great miracles was to demonstrate and tangibly show the grace of God and demonstrate who he was. It says it in the, the first miracle that he did was when he turned the water into wine. And it says he turned the, after he did this and everything happened, it says, and their, his disciples put their faith in him. Right? And that is what the point of Jesus' miracles was. And the thing that I want you to see is that it was a great and glorious moment. It only occupies these couple of verses here. No elaboration is given about what miracles he did. No elaboration is given much about specifically what he taught to the multitudes. But you know it must have been grand and glorious and wonderful. When Jesus taught, what would he teach? He would teach about God's way of salvation through faith. And so you have these great multitudes that no doubt have come from Jerusalem and all around uh, across the river and, and on the eastern side in Perea. And they've all gathered to where Jesus is. And he's telling them about how people will experience God's salvation through the Messiah, uh, how people will experience life in the kingdom of God through faith in the Messiah who was standing right in front of them, and he calls them to faith, and he calls them to salvation. Presumably, Mark's account, which describes the teaching of Jesus, presumably his teaching would include that. What else would his teaching include? His teaching would no doubt include life, teaching about life as a disciple, like what he was teaching about in Matthew chapter 18, you know? Uh, all these things about how you deal with uh, conflicts that come up and, and how the, the kingdom of heaven, the greatest, is like the little child and, 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 and we should receive one another and not despise one another and not make each other stumble. So, so you, have, you have the great and glorious Son of God standing there teaching these great multitudes after he comes back from Galilee and he's teaching them about how they can be saved and teaching them about how they should live their lives as disciples who have been saved by God's grace through faith. Amen? That's a glorious, glorious scene. It's what you and I should long for and what you and I can have every day if we will sit at his feet and read his word and meditate on his word. And we can have at various moments throughout the week, maybe you make sure you get to a Bible study, get to church, get to a fellowship, come together and sit around the holy things of God and allow, allow your heart to be drawn close to God. Open my eyes. Open my eyes. Ready your will to see. Right? Uh, and then, of course, Matthew's account here says that he healed 
What healings did he do? I don't know. But there were multitudes. A great multitude. And when Jesus healed, there are, there are points in the Gospels where it actually specifically says he healed every single one of them. And it goes on to describe there's people who are blind and their eyes are opened. There are people who are deaf and their ears are opened. There are people who are paralyzed in some way and they're able to walk or move again. There are people who have various illnesses who, that are just immediately taken away. There are people who are possessed by demons and have other illnesses that maybe would have appeared that way, whatever it was, and, and Jesus just drove it all out. And it's a great and glorious time. So let me just, let me just read verses 1 through 3 again and have that picture of what I've just described in your mind. Ready? Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, marveling at the wonderful things that Jesus was doing, desirous of learning of God's great salvation and to see these wonderful miracles, for they began to recognize that God's Messiah was right in their presence, and they rejoiced at the presence of God. Oh, wait. Do you see what a hard heart will do? They had God in the flesh. He was healing devastated lives, ruined lives. He was opening the minds and the eyes of ignorant people, faithless people. And here came the Pharisees testing him. Now, Let us not scorn the Pharisees. That's not the point. Because we can be like this. They came testing him. And before I go any further, let me point out that testing what somebody teaches is a good thing. You should test what I teach. You should open your own Bibles and read and make sure... You're testing. The Apostle Paul very famously commended the Christians at a particular town. Does anyone know the name of the town I'm talking about? Berea, right? Not Peria, which this is, but Berea with a B. He commended the Christians in Berea because they, when he preached to them, opened up their scriptures and made sure that what Paul was saying was accurate. So that's a good thing. But may I suggest to you, that's not what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees are testing him because as we have seen many other times in the various accounts of Christ's life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they were trying to find some way to trap him. They were trying to find some way to accuse him. They were trying to find some aha moment. 
right? They thought they got their aha moment when? When he was on the cross. And they literally said, aha, you saved others. Let the Christ, if he's really the king of Israel, save himself and come down from the cross, right? That's when they thought they finally had him. What a tragedy that the heart was so hard that they were completely closed off to the very presence of God incarnate and the teachings of the truth of God right from the mouth of him who himself is described as the word which became flesh. The reason I say we shouldn't be so hard personally on the Pharisees, well, number one, we're not called to be people's judges in that way, right? We should judge things that are taught. We should judge righteously, but we're not called to look down our noses at anybody. So that's not the point. But also, we have to recognize that we can fall into a little bit what they had fallen into. As the passage goes on, I know that Jesus talks about marriage and divorce here, and we're going to talk about that today too. But will you at least with me recognize that it does not appear that Jesus' main point in anything here was to do a lesson about marriage and divorce. What Jesus was doing was responding to a bunch of religious hypocrites, to a bunch of theological know-it-alls who were of no practical good to anybody, a bunch of spiritless, lifeless, dead charlatans. Again, we can be this. That's my point. I'm not being personally hard on any of them because we can fall into this. But what Jesus was doing here was not he was choosing to decide to do a discourse on marriage and divorce. He was trying to show these people who were coming to him that their hearts were hard. And because their hearts were hard, there were two consequences. One, they completely misunderstood what they thought they knew about marriage and divorce, which we'll come to. But number two, and most prominently, they were missing the glory of God that was bursting forth right in front of them. And I think that's the main point of this whole passage We will, like I said, examine what Jesus says here about marriage and divorce. But first I want you to recognize the tragedy of a hard heart and how a hard heart can cause people to miss God. And I want to point out to you, as you read through the dialogue, that they ask him the question, and it says that Jesus answered by going back to the book of Genesis and quoting the passage from Genesis chapter 2 where God ordains marriage by talking about how a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus interprets that by saying, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then they ask another question. Why did Moses permit them to write a certificate of divorce and put them away? And I thought about taking the time to do this, but I'm not going to. You can just do it for yourself. They're referring to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4, that, well, you know what? 
Let's do it. Let's go there. Matthew 20, uh, Deuteronomy 24. Keep your finger. We're not going to stay there long, but I want you to see this. Deuteronomy 24. Yeah, I think this is actually good that we turn here. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her or, 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 or something like immoral, you know? And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I'm not going to take the time today to explain everything that that means other than to show you, I think it's very easy to see that the Pharisees were not taking seriously what that passage was really all about to begin with, right? Certainly that passage in Deuteronomy has nothing about, has nothing to do with if people don't feel like being married anymore, they can just get divorced, right? There was a very specific reason why that was written down so as to stave off the consequences of sexual immorality, right? So, uh, so when you come back here, what you see, go back to Matthew now, what you see is that when they ask this question in verse 7, where they're referring to what Deuteronomy 24 says, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? You know, because they thought they had him, right? I mean, they asked him, you know, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus interprets Genesis chapter 2 as meaning, of course not. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So they thought they had him at that point. And they quote Deuteronomy. I mean, think about it. They thought they had Jesus and quoted Scripture to him. They quoted Scripture to the author of it, right, and thought they had him. And then Jesus, now the verse 8 is the key. Verse 8 is the key to the passage. Moses, because the hardness of your hearts, stop. Now, Moses lived many centuries before Jesus was there. But notice that Jesus does not say Moses because of the hardness of their hearts. He doesn't say that, right? He says Moses because of the hardness of your hearts permitted him to do that. What's he doing? That's Jesus being Jesus, like we so many times see. That's Jesus doing two things at once. That's Jesus answering their question and their incorrect theological understanding of what Deuteronomy 24 was about, but also rebuking them for what? The hardness of their hearts. Jesus recognized what was up. The scheme was being rolled out right in front of his eyes. The scam was on in full. He knew these guys were trying to very slickly trying to trap him in some words so they could go back to Jerusalem, tell the chief priests, stir up some reason why the chief priests could send and have him arrested and brought up in charges so they could do away with Jesus. 
right? But no, Jesus not only corrects their misunderstanding, but also rebukes them for their hardness of heart because if it weren't for their hardness of heart, they would not care about this question in this moment. All they would care about is, look at the miracles being done. There's a guy that they carried in on a mat and he's dancing. There's a guy who walked in and he couldn't see anything and now he's looking around. There's a guy who couldn't even say anything. He was mute and now he's singing the praises of God. This is amazing. If their hearts weren't hard, they would have seen that. Heart is very important to God. When God chose David to be his servant, it wasn't because David was sinless. We read of a number of David's sins in the Bible. Some really bad ones. But David had a heart that was like God's. David was humble. He thirsted. David in his heart thirsted and hungered for the same things that God did. Even though David, being flesh, didn't have the capacity to always pursue it the right way. God, of course, does. Right? The heart matters to God. It's why God says in Proverbs, very famously, that the heart needs to be protected by you, yourself. You need to guard your own heart because everything in your life comes out of it. What you say what you think, how you value things, how you prioritize, how you talk, how you treat other people. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. You know all these sayings. So Jesus rebukes them for a hard heart. And I just, I just scratched down for myself. Before we get into the things, the actual content of what he says about marriage and divorce, I want to talk to you about what causes our hearts to be hard and what are the results of our hearts being hard. I made a list of five things and each one of these, it's not a comprehensive list, you can think of more, but the Lord put these things in my mind and each one of these things that I'm going to mention are things that can be the cause of a hard heart can cause your heart to be hard and are then furthermore propped up by your heart being hard. So there's this hand-in-hand relationship between the hard heart and these things. They cause your heart to be hard and they continue to go on because your heart is hard. Okay? You ready? Here they are. Number one, everyone should be able to guess what's number one on the list. What do you think? I thought I heard someone whisper it just now. Pride, pride, pride. Pride will cause our hearts to be hard. Pride will continue to go on because our hearts are hard. What do you know about pride and God? God puts out his holy, all-powerful hand in the face of it and resists it with all of his sovereign omnipotence, resists the proud, but gives his grace to the humble. 
right? Pride is number one. Number two, another thing that will cause the heart to be hard and will persist as long as the heart remains hard. And you see a bit of this in the Pharisees, which is why I'm not too hard on them, because we can all have this. And this is related to pride, but is a little more practical to understand. Selfishness. And by that, what I mean is, we have a higher view of self than the Bible describes. Humans have the inclination to have a much higher view of themselves than the Bible will describe. This can manifest itself in many ways. It will manifest in the way you prioritize your life. It will manifest in the way you deal with other people. It will manifest in the way that you go through life kind of manipulating your own situation so it is most favorable to you. It is Selfishness is the opposite of being selfless, that is, a servant. I mean, we're called to serve like Jesus served. The way of the disciple is to look at Christ who clothes himself in an apron and walks from disciple to disciple and washes the grime and the filth off of their feet and then says, I've done this as an example, as I've done for you, you do for each other. A small, simple act, but so selfless. And then, of course, Jesus did the grandest, most selfless of things when he went to the cross and shed his blood and died for our sins, knowing in his holy, omnipotent mind that he could have called on legions of angels and stopped the whole thing. One word. Hey, listen, everyone at Christmas time, you love that Gloria in Excelsis Deo, the heavenly host in the sky? That heavenly host, though not visible, was right there when Jesus was suffering and dying. And all they needed was one word. Stop this. And that would have been the end of it. But the ultimate in selflessness was what Jesus did for us. Not only rescued us from our sins, but appointed an example in his own sacrifice for us, which the Bible makes reference to many times. Philippians especially speaks of him going all the way to the cross, despising the shame, but but giving himself on the cross and setting an example of humility for us. Selfishness. Don't go through your life selfish. Don't don't live as a Christian thinking that your life in God's kingdom is just about you pursuing what you want. Look, you don't come to Christ and hold on this tenacious promotion of yourself and that which you want and that which you like. What was the lesson from the previous chapter? The greatest is the one who becomes the servant. Right? Right? Again, when Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. And then at the end of the prayer, it says, for the kingdom and the power and the glory are what? Yours. The kingdom of God is not mine. It's mine in the sense that I have been granted by his grace a place in it. In that sense, yes. 
I am a subject in his kingdom. Thank God. Praise the Lord. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am rescued from the dominion of this world. Like we sang before, my chains are gone and I've been set free, right? My God, my Savior has ransomed me, rescued me, right? And, but however, when we pray, we recognize the kingdom is really what? His. And so we don't live selfishly. When we live selfishly, we act like the kingdom is ours. Your life is not your little kingdom. Your life is wrapped up in Christ. And Christ's life is wrapped up in God the Father's. And so we're called to be humble and to be servants. Number three, another thing that will create a hard heart. You'll find yourself hard and dry. And this, this is not necessary. I mean, pride is sinister. Easy to see. Selfishness is sinister. Easy to see. This Though you've been in church long enough, you'll recognize it as something bad. But this is a little more subtle because of the ways that it can touch us as individuals. And that is carnality. That is the love of this world. The Apostle John wrote, Do not love the world! Said plain as that. He said, if you love the world, if you love the things of the world, what does it say? Then the love of the Father is what? Not in you. Yeah. Just like we have the tendency to have a higher view of self than the Bible describes, and I've said this recently already, but here it is again, we tend to have a much higher view of this life than the Bible describes. We tend to value our fleshly lives a lot more than the Bible does. Listen, Are you to live then recklessly or irresponsibly? No. We're called to be good stewards. We're called to love our wives and and love our children. And if you're a child, you're called to obey your parents. You're called to be diligent in your work and not slothful in your work. You're called to bring your body into subjection. You're called uh, to preach the gospel and to serve. Listen, so so it's it's not like... We're not talking about just just forsaking all responsibility to things in this life. We're talking about the love of the world and the pleasures of the world. Is it wrong to enjoy a meal? Is it wrong to enjoy a football game? I hope not because the youth group's coming to my house in a few hours. That would make me a hypocrite. That would be bad. Is it wrong wrong to enjoy a movie? That would be bad too because the ladies are coming to watch one on Friday night. Is it? No. No, 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 no. In measure, you know, and, and, and at liberty, you can enjoy things as the Lord leads you. But your heart needs to be in the right place. That's what we're talking about is the heart. If your whole life is about pursuing pleasure, if your whole life is about what you enjoy and there's no room for anything else, your heart. See, we think of a hard heart. We think of some sad, angry-looking person, Right? You know, when we think, we think of the Pharisees standing there with a very stern scold, a scolding look on their faces. You know, that's the hard heart. May I say to you that the person who's hanging out at a bar or something and drinking and drinking and drinking and smiling and laughing and carousing and everything else may have every bit as hard a heart as the scornful Pharisee because their heart cares not or the things of God. The stoniness of the heart has blocked out any fear of God, any love for God, any respect for God. 
listen, brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches us that we need to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. This is one of the reasons why every day, every day, every day, every day, you need to be going into his word and meditating on his word. Every day, every day, you need to be in prayer, spending time alone in going in the room and closing the door and seeking the Lord in secret that he may reward you openly. It's why, because if you do that, you will find it much more difficult to just go through day after day after day after day, slugging out, trying to get the most out of life carnally, as you possibly can, it can lead to a hard heart before God. And you know, the hard heart sometimes manifests itself the way it did in the Pharisees' experience here in that they needed to like stomp out Jesus. So they needed to test him to find some way to like, you know, catch him in something. But also the hard heart can manifest itself much more subtly without involving anybody else. It can be just you. You find yourself dry as a bone. You can, just, you can just stand or sit in a church and there's all this glorious music going on and, and there are these wonderful prayers being prayed. It doesn't mean a thing to you. You're going through the motions. May I suggest to you it's because your heart is hard. And it might be because your heart is hard because you've allowed the love of this world to captivate you to excite you, to grab hold of your affections, to grab hold of those deep inner inclinations for, for, for satisfaction in a way that has squeezed God out. And I know what you're thinking. God is sovereign. How can we squeeze God out? Listen, I, all I'm going to tell you is this. The Apostle Paul told us to what? Quench not the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Apostle Paul said, don't quench the Holy Spirit, what must you derive from that? It is possible for us to quench the Holy Spirit. Not drive him away, not rule over him, but the, the, the effect of the fullness of him in our lives can be quenched like throwing a bucket of water on a flame when we are filled with carnal living. Examine yourself. All oh, the words that I'm giving you here today, I feel like they're so important, and I hope, I hope all of us will be willing to look and examine yourself. Okay, number four. Ooh, I'm going to use an ugly word. Laziness. What? Laziness about seeking God. Laziness about the things of God. A, a not pursuing prayer, the word, meditation on the word, fellowship, church, service. And you got the Bible saying to us, assemble, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but actually even more as you see as day approaching, come together to stir each other up to love and good works and encourage one another and everything else. When you have the Bible saying that and, and, and you're able to just mm-hmm, shake your head but then not appropriate it in your own life, sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes we're just flat out being spiritually lazy. Maybe this will help someone. 
the time to read the Bible and meditate on God's Word and pray is not when you feel like it. In the old days, and by the old days I mean maybe 25, 30 years ago when I was a young believer in the Lord, they used to call it devotions. Right? What was that? That was a word that described you, that time that you spent with the Lord. You don't spend time with God because you feel like it. You know what happens, I have found many times in my life, is that when I least feel like it, for whatever reason, I've allowed myself to go a little... I've allowed some of these other things, pride, selfishness, carnality, I've allowed them to creep in, maybe even unwittingly. They've crept into my life. We all have that proclivity to allow the the old man to kind of rise up and creep up. Those times when it's like, I know it's time to seek the Lord. I know I need to seek Him. I know I need to pray. I know I need to meditate on His Word. I know I need to be in church. But I just don't feel like it. When you give in to those feelings, you're not doing right. What I have found is very often those are the times when you most need to push into it. And you know what you'll find? You'll find what is counterintuitive. We think that life in the Spirit means every time it comes time to pray or whatever, I'm just going to so want to do it that God's just going to draw me into it. And it's the exact opposite. You may not feel like it, but then you go before the Lord and you spend time with the Lord. And when you're done, you realize, wow, that was really great. I've said this about like men's fellowships and church services and and, and, and uh, even seen it in my own devotional time. I've never had someone come to a men's fellowship and leave it and say to me, man, I really wish I hadn't come here today. But I have time. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen. I have time and time and time and time again had people after church after a Bible study, after a fellowship, after just having a good week of walking with God themselves, come to me and say, I am so glad, Pastor, I was here today. I have people come to me and say, I, I, felt, like, I felt like the message was like just for me. I, 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 I feel like when you were talking, you were somehow talking to me. And I can tell you, in almost 18 years of preaching from this pulpit, I've never once, never one time stood up and preached a sermon that was just aimed at a person. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. You know what you get from me, right? What do you get from me? I, listen, I know there's all kinds of stuff in the news. We, uh, we uh, like, assassinated some Iranian general, and, and, there's all kind, and people are afraid of war. And, and, all, and, you, know, and you, you don't come to church and get political or current events commentary from me ever, ever, ever. As long as I have breath, and as long as God has me here, you're going to come to church on Sunday morning, and you're going to get the next passage in the Bible. That's it. That's what this is. This, this, a little off the subject here, but this, this is a haven from all of that. And if, you, if, if people think that makes me out of touch or my head in the sand, first of all, you're wrong. I'm fully aware of everything that's going on. I, I'm more into it than you realize. But I have made the decision that this is going to be about this. And we're going to listen to him. Whew. Look. 
Let me just, bottom line, the point was what? Sometimes we're lazy about seeking God. And the reason we get lazy is because we base what we do on our feelings rather than what we know is right. And what happens is when you commit yourself to doing what is right, even when you don't feel it, the feelings will follow suit. But you, you know what you have to do? You have to trust God. You have to have faith. Your whole walk with God is faith. You have to trust him that even when you're not feeling it, whatever that means, you're going to worship, you're going to sanctify him, you're going to meditate on his word. Even if all you can find for whatever reason is to like dwell on one thought in his word, you're going to trust him that he will meet you there. That's who he meets. He doesn't meet the eloquent Pharisee. He doesn't meet the pastor. He doesn't meet that one who you think has just got everything going right. He meets the one who has faith. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is trust. Trust. Since the subject is marriage, let me use this as an illustration. Um, If you don't feel like you want to be around your spouse, does that mean that like, she shouldn't trust me anymore? Am I allowed to break trust with my wife because I don't, for whatever reason, feel like talking to her in a particular moment or something and we all have those bad moments? No, I know what is right before God. And you know what will happen is I'll do what's right before God and the relationship with my spouse or with your spouse will work itself out. Christians are not people who are committed to good feelings. They're people that are committed to righteousness. Jesus did not die so that how God feels could be imputed to you. He died so that the righteousness of Jesus would be imputed to you that you might be justified and declared righteous before God. And then you are a pursuer of righteousness. The Bible says of itself that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in good feelings. Please shake your head no, because you know I didn't cry. Instruction in righteousness. That means we're taught by God to do what's right. The feelings will follow. The feelings are the tail, not the head. Trust him. Trust him. That's what he wants you to do anyway. He wants you to trust him. Number five. Wrong kingdom priorities. Wrong Number, these are the things that will create and be maintained. Front end and back end. Hand in hand relationship with a hard heart. Pride, selfishness, carnality, laziness about our relationship with God. And number five, wrong kingdom priorities. 
We have a higher view of our own perceptions of what the kingdom of God ought to look like or ought to be than the Bible gives. See, sometimes our perceptions of the kingdom of God is, you know, I don't know, church should look or feel like this. The music should look or feel like this. It should be big, 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 or, 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 or whatever. We get our views of how ministry should go. And then when it doesn't go that way, we become despondent. And our hearts grow hard. But what do we fail to do? We fail to recognize that God is sovereign. He is sovereign. And our job is to do our part in his kingdom and serve him. Okay, I, somehow you guys have escaped me ever making a reference to Downton Abbey from the pulpit. So here it comes, my first ever reference to it. But, I, but the first time I saw this scene, I thought to myself, do you, do you know what that, by the way, do you know what that is? It's a television show. Okay, some of you don't even know. All right. Trust me, it's a television show. It's a pretty good one. So there's a scene. There's a, the, the basic premise is there's this English earl. You know, he's an aristocrat within the English system, right? But he has no heir. And so who's going to be the next earl when he dies? So they find some distant relative, a guy named Matthew. And Matthew's going to be the heir, Right? But Matthew is from a different kind of life. He's not used to having butlers and maids, and, and he's not used to having a valet, or we Americans would say it the French way, valet. The English say valet. So, so, so he's got this valet whose name is Mosley. But he basically tells Mosley, I think it's pretty silly. Why do I need someone else to help me get dressed? I'm gonna, just going to get dressed. So he goes and he talks to the earl, who is his distant relative, but the person that he's next in line to the earldom below. And he tells them, I think it's pretty ridiculous that I have to have another man help me get dressed. And the earl tells him this. He says, we all have our bit. We all have our part to play, and we must be allowed to play it. Good, right? Life in the kingdom of God is exactly like that. We have our part. And we get a wrong vision of the kingdom sometimes. Our vision of the kingdom sometimes is that, that was pretty painless, the Downton Abbey uh, uh, reference there, right? Yes? We get, we get a vision of the kingdom that it ought to be like this, and it ought to be like that, and these people ought to act like, like this, and these people ought to act like that, and our church ought to be growing, and there ought to be hundreds of people here, and it ought to be, you know, and then what happens is we go out and we witness to people, and they don't seem like they want to listen. We try to organize and do things in the church and struggle to get people to participate, you know, et cetera, and, so, and what can happen, and this can happen to all of us. Look inside your own mind. View what you think your life and ministry as a servant of Jesus ought to be like by now. And you look at it and you realize, man, I, 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 it, it ought to be different by now. But that can create a hard heart. It can cause you to become discouraged. It can cause you to stop. It can cause you to think you need to change. 
It can cause you to think, you know what, maybe we don't need to be so insistent about being in the Bible and being in God's Word. Maybe you ought to try some other thing. Or, or it can cause all sorts of like changes or deviations from going down the narrow road with the Lord. But no. Our visions of the kingdom ought to be to be faithful and to be humble and to recognize that God is sovereign and do our bit in his kingdom. Lord, help me to be a witness where I can. Help me to faithfully preach every time you give me an opportunity. Help me to walk in humility before you. Help me to love my brothers and sisters. Help me to minister, even if it's just one new person I see over a couple of weeks and and I get a chance to open up the gospel of Christ to them. If that is your sovereign will, if that is the way you dictate things, God, hallelujah. And you do not grow discouraged if it's anything different than that. You stay faithful. See, we get a wrong kingdom priority in our heads. And we need to remember what? For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours, not mine. Five things that will create a hard heart. Pride, selfishness, carnality, laziness about seeking God, and wrong kingdom priorities. Now, you will notice that I have preached the full measure of my time and I have not yet said anything about what Jesus says about marriage and divorce. That's on purpose. Because the main point of this passage is to show how Jesus is deflecting the hard heart of these Pharisees who stood there testing him, trying to trip him up while the glory of God was bursting forth in front of them because their hearts were hard. May we not allow pride, selfishness, carnality, spiritual laziness, and wrong kingdom priorities to harden our hearts so that we don't miss what the Lord has for us. Do you think that we're not going to talk about what Jesus says about Divorce and marriage? Of course we are. I thought I might get into a little bit today, but you know what? I'm going to end it there. Because I think that's what we should be thinking about today. Guard against a hard heart. Walk closely with the Lord. Do you know, do you know that the bottom, the bottom line, the great conclusion of 9 out of 10 sermons, maybe 95 out of 100 sermons could be, Make sure you're in the Word, meditating on it every day. Make sure you're in prayer every day. Make sure fellowship with other Christians in church is a priority in your lives. Listen, guard against a hard heart. Don't be like the Pharisees who had God working right in front of them, but because they were proud, selfish, carnal, spiritually lazy, and had wrong kingdom priorities, Paralyzed people suddenly walking meant nothing to them. What meant something to them was, let's nail Jesus on this doctrinal point about divorce from Deuteronomy. Let's not be that. Let's be soft-hearted. Let's be humble. Let's be servants. 
Let's be spiritually minded and walk by faith. Let's be diligent about speaking God. And let's have the right kingdom priorities, which starts with recognizing that God is sovereign. Do you see that? That's the complete undoing of the five points I mentioned. Pride, selfishness, carnality, laziness, and wrong kingdom priorities. Replace that with humility, service, walking by faith, by the Spirit, diligence about seeking God, and remembering that the kingdom is His and He is sovereign. And let's, in humility and faith, do our bit. Jed and Fanny, come on back up.